On the Empire Podcast this week, we talk to some of Hollywood's finest, from Oscar Best Actor favourite Matthew McConaughey to Spike Jones, the boundlessly inventive director of Her, and finally, the national treasure that is... Gary Oldman. We also cast our eye over the new releases including Robocop, Dallas Buyers Club and The Invisible Woman. All that and more on the only movie podcast that arrives bang on time. Tube Strike or no goddamn Tube Strike. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create a professional website, blog, portfolio or online store for a free trial and 10% off your first purchase on any new accounts. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer code which is Empire. I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Empire Podcast. This week I'm joined by the finest all-male trio, this side of Larry, Curly and Moe, or Keen, one of the two. First up is our art house guru, a man so immersed in the world of foreign cinema he once changed his name by deed poll to Les Diabolik. It's Phil DeSimlin, you alright? Yes. Thanks Chris, I'm should very call, well. How are call you? you Les? Call me Leslie. Leslie Diabolik. Uh, next we have another Lewis Pesky DeSimlin boys, this one once changed his name by deed poll to Nick and nor is him for the playlist. But it was too long to fit in his passport, so he changed it back to Nick DeSimlian. Hello. That's a true story. Last but not least, we have the ebullient editor of the podcast who once changed his name by deed poll to Alien, Len Aliens, Len Alien 3, Len Alien Resurrection, before he plumbed for Prometheus, and then that was so embarrassing, he had to change it back to Ali Plum. Hello. Hello. How are you? Good, thanks. Excellent news, excellent news. Well, small talk over. Ha, 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 Let's move on to our, uh, some lovely questions you guys have been sending in on Twitter and email all week long. First one's from at Eric Strat, who says, Has anyone ever out would John Cazale? Or even come <laughs> close? Uh, he made the Deer Hunter Dog Day. He only made five films, of course, <laughs> before he passed away, sadly, of cancer. But he made the Deer Hunter Dog Day Afternoon, Godfather 1, Godfather 2, and The Conversation. Those were his five films. That's a pretty good selection, I'm saying. All five of those films were Oscar nominated, weren't they? They were all Oscar nominated. Several of them won Best Picture. Uh, I imagine they have at least 75% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, yeah, pretty damn good films. And he was amazing in, in all of them as well. He was. And it's interesting if you look at his career that a lot of the people he worked with, Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Meryl Streep, they all looked at him as the man. They were all Street, blown away. Meryl Streep, of course, was was with him when he died. Yeah. Um, worked with him on the Deer Hunter. The, the studio didn't know he was ill when he took that part. You know, he had bone cancer. Mm. Michael Michael Cimino did, mm. and Meryl Streep obviously uh, was with him. And she, the studio, got wind of it and wanted him off the picture. And Meryl Streep threatened to walk away from that picture as well. Um, but fortunately, you know, he he managed to. Uh, to stay on it he died before it was released yeah, if I, you're talking about like McTiernan's runs for actors yeah a few can I mean nobody can, can nobody can match that for um, hit rate I can't think of anyone it just no one comes close look at some of the old guys some of the old greats who had short lived careers Montgomery Clift mm. made 18 movies I believe uh, amongst them um, I Confess Hitchcock Red River From Here to Eternity Misfits Judgment at Nuremberg Place in the Sun I mean some real classics there um, but some duffers too along the yes. way. It's just impossible to know. I mean, John Cazale was around at a time working with Sidney Lumet, uh, Francis Ford Coppola. You know, it's a glorious time to be an actor, you know, with real actor-driven material. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Well, James Dean obviously springs to mind. We've talked about him in the podcast before. You know, similar situation. Three classic films before uh, a premature death. 
it's really hard. I can't honestly think of anyone. You know, I don't think anyone's out John Cazale, Cazale to John Cazale. Mm. Um, but who knows? Harrison Ford also did Hollywood Homicide, mm-hmm. Firewall, yep. Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. This is his true classic. Crossing right? over. Yes. Capping it all off. Extraordinary measures. <laughs> that is an extraordinary run, gentlemen. That, that is a hot run. I've got Nick Cage with his reverse McTinnis run of uh, World Trade Center, Wicker Man and Ghost Rider. Oh. Three in a row there. Okay. Chaplin, uh, you know, I don't know if writer, actor, director thing counts, but he did The Gold Rush, The Circus, City Lights, Modern Times, and The Great Dictator, all in a row. Yeah, but the problem is that a lot of, you know, then often with people who make great films in a row tend to come duffers. John Carpenter between, what, 1975 and 1982, an amazing run. Absolutely amazing run. But then after that, he made Let's move on to a question from at Glenn underscore Naylor. Instead of rebooting classics, what flops would you like remade? I.e. decent premises, but badly shot slash bad direction, etc. This is, yeah, I always think this should be the case with remakes. I've got a Sean Connery triple bill to suggest here. Mm-hmm. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Yes. Zardosh. Zardosh. And Outland. That doesn't have a shibble and sound, but I'll make one anyway. <laughs> Outlandsh. <laughs> Honestly, I think, I think all three... All three have something to them. Even League of Extraordinary Gentlemen has something to it, but they all need to be entirely rebuilt from the bottom up. Did you say Zardos? I mean that in particular, bottom up from Zardos. (laughs) What what about Zardos has any potential? Right, here's the potential. The nappy. Here's the potential. Red leather nappy with gun holsters, Sean Connery. That's your potential. I'm out. I'm tapping out. I don't want that. And he's an 80-something-year-old man. I don't think he could squeeze into a red nappy these days. Ironically, I think he could. He probably could. That's the one thing he could. (laughs) But honestly, asking him to come back from his retirement to remake his own film, there's a certain Sean Connery screw you-iness about that he'd like. Yeah, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is a great concept, obviously. Uh, Dreadful, dreadful film. I love that Sean Connery uh, took that film on. His reason for taking on that film was, I turned down The Matrix and Lord of the Rings because I didn't understand them. I didn't understand this script either, but I was damned if I was going to let this one go. Actual quote from Sean Connery. <laughs> he didn't, he didn't have a clue. Um, and of course, that turned out to be his last film. Uh, apart from Sir Billy. Mm. Of course. Phil. What's wrong with Outland? I quite like Outland. I like Outland also. It was a flop, is what I'm saying. He didn't make money. Oh, I see. It, uh, the question was, what flops would you like remade? Oh, I see. Was it a flop? I didn't know it was a flop. It didn't make much money. No. That was a remake of High Noon, of course, so you could do it again. Transplanted to the West, maybe. <laughs> um, I, Plumetheus. Can we remake Prometheus? Have Why? a crack oh, at see, that. That's Why? a much better uh, version of... Yeah, uh, yeah. I should have got... Plumetheus. Unfortunately, that wasn't a flop by any stretch no, of the imagination. No, it wasn't a flop. You're right. I've forgotten to think about the fact that these were flop. What about Alexander? That should have been much better than it was, shouldn't it? I'm sure that made money. I'm certain of it. Um, oh. I, don't th- I don't think it did, I, but I'm, no. I, I think flop in this case is, I think whenever people are... When creative you, flop. Yeah, creative flop. When Hollywood tends to remake classic horror films and classic you know, movies like Robocop, which we'll be getting onto later in the day, my feeling generally is go for the ones that have potential but didn't quite make it. There's a film, I think it's from about 1981, called Time After Time, uh, directed by Nicholas Mayer, who then went on to do uh, Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. It's a fantastic premise. It's a completely loopy premise. It's H.G. Uh, Wells invents the time machine for real and is about to go into the future on an exploratory journey when Jack the Ripper <laughs> steals it 
and goes forward in time to San Francisco. And then H.G. Wells also goes forward in time and winds up in modern day San Francisco and kind of at some point tries to track down Jack the Ripper, but mainly falls in love with Mary Steenburgen. And it's a it's a kind of a shaggy dog story, really. And David Warner's in it, Malcolm McDowell's in it, and Mary Steenburgen, as I mentioned. It's got loads and loads of potential, but it just kind of falls a bit flat. And you're kind of going, that's a movie you should be remaking. It's a premise that you can't even recount without corpsing. <laughs> no, I can, so can't imagine how they didn't make it through the pitching <laughs> process. But that's the thing, the movie doesn't have a sense of the fun. It doesn't have a sense of, this is ridiculous. That's exactly right, and that's why I was going to mention Cowboys and Aliens, because Cowboys versus Aliens. Cowboys and Aliens. Cowboys and Aliens. Cowboys versus and Aliens. Whatever it was called. You may be the only person on Earth who wants that rebooted. I wanted it to be fun and funny, and, you know, it had a good cast. Who doesn't love Aliens and Cowboys? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Talking of Cowboys, I would like to see Westworld redone. I revisited that last week, and it's not very good. Uh, directed by Michael Crichton, um, and it's a bit shonky, but I think the premise Ooh. is great. Robot cowboys gone rogue. Do you think that Crichton from Red Dwarf was called Crichton after Michael Crichton directed Westworld? <laughs> That's a good question. Ooh. Possibly. That's Possibly. a really good question. Uh, I imagine uh, it's going to be remade as Jurassic World. If only we'd had the cast of Red Dwarf in this very podcast. Yeah. We could have asked them. Anyone ever seen the sequel, Future World? Is there a, is there yeah. a sequel? Yeah. I did not know that. There you go. Is you Westworld bad then? It's not as good as I remember it being. From my childhood. It's not very well directed. Okay. Yeah. Because that's kind of the premise of Robopocalypse, isn't it? A little bit. It's got a great last 20 minutes. Yes. Mm. Where it's just Yul Brenner coming mm. after this guy. Incessantly. It's, uh, it's relentless. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. But the rest of it's not great. Um, I have a few others. Uh, Lemony Snicket, I'm always saying. I love those books so much. They got the film wrong, although Jim Carrey was great casting. Maybe do that as a kind of CG animation. Uh, Snakes on a Plane. Great premise. Not enough mongooses. Mongoose. Needed more of those. Mongai. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Hancock as well. It's a good idea for a film, I think, but not well done. Did it have any mongooses in it? Didn't have a single one. Right. Hancock was initially going to be a Michael Mann movie. And it was initially going to be a much darker R-rated movie. And it was originally called Tonight He Comes. And the idea was that it was about a superhero and he wanted to have sex with someone. But he couldn't because... It, I, I guess it's based on that old, Sup- that old tale that if Superman had sex with someone, he would basically blow a hole in it. Atomic jizz. Uh, so the idea was that then he found, yes, atomic jizz. He would then, he found a partner who could take his seed, so to speak. So that's what it was about. And then I got watered down massively. Which is what it's called Hancock. <laughs> I can imagine it was, yes. Please don't use the word seed again take on the podcast. <laughs> don't ever that's say like those something things. Dan would say. Sorry. Don't say any of those I'm things. I'm trying again. to keep this PG 13 and family friendly. You made it far ickier. <laughs> it's far worse than it could have ever imagined. I could, I, I could have used oozing man juice. I could have gone for that. See, this is what happens when Helen's not here. She's not, she's not here to rein us back. All right. I, I just want to mention every video game adaptation, almost every video game adaptation ever needs okay. to be remade properly uh, I, um, I won't mention any names because the one that's popping into my head I can't talk about and also I would <laughs> want to mention Highlander as an idea to be remade I have a lot of affection for the first one but I would definitely like to see another take on it also Johnny Mnemonic I think, uh, and it's going to be controversial we probably don't have time to get into this the first Highlander is dreadful absolutely dreadful I know it's Awful. dreadful I watch it knowing it's dreadful I've seen it in the IMAX going wow this is terrible but yeah. I enjoy it throughout like it's a mess I'm Spanish <laughs> I remember that line that was one of my favourites yeah. he walks on the screen and says yes 
I'm Spanish. <laughs> what about Reign of Fire? Reign of Fire. Oh, no, he's not in that. Good um, one. Yes. Reign of Fire. I mean, you can't... It's dragons. It's sort of future medieval. How yeah. could you go wrong in London? And yet they did. There's an amazing uh, Japanese film called uh, G.I. Samurai, which is about... Uh, again, it's a bit like Time After Time, which is about <laughs> a battalion of modern soldiers who are transported back in time to the to the you know the time of samurai and they have massive big big fight and Sonny Cheap is in I think Sonny Cheap had directed it I'm not I can't entirely remember but I saw this when I was a kid and it just it stayed with me ever since and I caught up with it again a few years ago and it is absolutely bonkers and bleak and demented and you should check it out if you can and I'd love to see it remade properly with a huge huge budget and massive scope that'd be, that'd be amazing uh, last question is from at labeled indie pod who asks having promised both Dexter Fletcher and James Purifoy the Jason Isaacs role hello Dexter Fletcher hello James Purifoy uh, for the Empire podcast which is it we have done that we've been a little bit promiscuous haven't we with our promising I don't think we've done a great job of of, of sort of saying hi to them each week no we, we haven't step that up yeah because I imagine there's, there's tears Nick say it hello Dexter Hello, James. No, they probably prefer us not to do that. <laughs> they probably <laughs> would. Pretty creepy. They probably would. I think it's less the hello stuff and the whenever we can, please get them on the podcast and interview them within the inch of their lives side of things rather than the hello, hello, hello. We couldn't steal that from... Uh, no. No. We could say goodbye attempt. to them. That would be different. We could say goodbye to them, but that would, that would seem a bit downbeat, doesn't it, really? Goodbye, uh, Dexter uh, Fletcher. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> Choose your next witticism wisely, Fletcher. Maybe your last. I saw it, Dexter Fletcher, just two weeks ago, around the corner, and my first thought was to grab him and bring him here. <laughs> but um, I received. Did he recognise you? Did he? Uh, I don't think he spotted me. He was in the hairdresser getting his lustrous mane uh, chopped. Okay. So uh, this is the worst story ever. It's pretty bad. <laughs> I saw a celebrity. He was in a hairdresser. So he didn't see me. <laughs> I, I was going to go and say hello, but I didn't think we were quite. How you know, creepy would that be? There's a, creep, there's a creepy line between saying hello to someone on a podcast and hoping that they might be listening and then actually going into a hairdresser's and going up to them and going hello Dexter Fletcher with a lustrous mane yeah. <laughs> my, uh, my hair guy once was summoned to a theatre to do Kevin Bacon's hair and he cut his hair on the stage that's amazing you have a hair guy? I have a hair guy holy what? god I have an eyebrow guy it's <laughs> the same guy that's amazing speaking of Jason Isaacs I once interviewed him while he was stripping down to his boxer shorts Was that in his house, or did, did he know he was being interviewed? In fairness, he may not have been conscious. Where the shit is Helen <laughs> when you need her? Well, she would have been here. She'd have loved that. All right, let's move on then. Um, I think that, I think that's it. we just we like those guys. Yeah, we love those both. guys. We're happy for them both to fulfil the Jason they, Isaacs. They role. are both brilliant. Dexter Fletcher is hilariously funny, and uh, and Jason Fleming as well. They can come in together or apart. Yes, the Flemster. and also uh, Jason Isaacs could also fulfil the Jason Isaacs role. He's been on the podcast once. There's a special Jason Isaacs special. It's about an hour long. Go back and listen. It's one of the very first things we did. If you haven't listened to it, check it out because he's very very funny on things like yes, Event Horizon. All right, now let's move on. If you want to get in touch with us on the podcast, you can Twitter us. Uh, we're on Twitter at Empire Magazine. You can use the hashtag Empire Podcast. We're on Facebook as Empire Magazine. Although no one ever sends us questions on Facebook, just complaints. And, and you can email us, podcast at empireonline.com. So there you go. Right, time now for our first interview. We've got three 
in this pod. So where to begin with Spike Jones? He's not just a brilliant music video director. He's not just part of the Jackass crew. He's not just a fine actor in his own right, as recently evidenced in The Wolf of Wall Street. He's not just capable of rocking an amazing tash, as recently evidenced in The Wolf of Wall Street. But he's a director and occasionally writer of some of the most brilliant and brain-bending films of the past 15 years, from being John Malkovich to Adaptation and next week's Her, in which Joaquin Phoenix falls in love with an operating system. He came to London recently and spoke to Philip and Alistair. And the one thing I want to say before you listen to this is that he had quite a lot of jet lag and also we walked in and uh, brought a small chunk of hair that he gave us when he was last in the office. But Johnny Knoxville took a snip of hair out of his head and gave it to us and said that we needed to clone him. Okay. Uh, so we have that framed in the office in one of the weirder things <clears> on our wall. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that explains the first two minutes of insanity. As opposed to the lock of Dexter Fletcher's hair that Phil scooped off the floor <laughs> of the hairdressers. Yes. I thought so. All right, enjoy. So why? So there's there's multiple people that do the Empire podcast. Hello. Why do you guys say Hello. the best ones? You said it. We no. don't say it. We're all we're all equally good. <laughs> all of no why good. are you so much what, so much better than the other people that do the Empire? I'm podcast? I'm more charming. I think is uh-huh. that? I think that's fair. That's fair. I mean, I haven't I don't haven't met the other ones, but I can just from your charm so far in the mm. last five minutes, I believe it. He's charming, and I'm the guy that gets us to the venue where we need to be. Oh really? So together, yeah, we work well. Well, this is Fire gonna, and ice. this is quite surreal. But last time you spoke to us was for Jackass 3D. Yeah, I remember. And, and you were in with we Johnny Knoxville. Yeah. And someone cut off some of your hair, and they then put it on a piece of paper, Helen, and then thank set you for cloning me, Spike Jones. Thanks, and, Empire. And we have it here. Well, did you clone me? We were basically going to ask a follow-up question. We've got the hair here. Okay. Could we have some from the root of your head? Oh, yeah. That way we can get the DNA. Oh, it's got you. Got you need it pulled out. Yes. Okay. okay, here yeah. it comes. That looks painful. Oh, Ow, Spike. Well, there's, there's one root right there. This should, be, right. this should be all we need. Thank you. Okay, We're good. at phase three on me, the clone. Oh, I didn't realize when you get to phase three, you need the root. You need the root. That's exactly right, oh, yeah. yeah. You guys are very advanced over there. Yeah, we mean business. But this is a very clunky segue into her, which involves in some way artificial life forms of a sort. God, I'm going to win awards for this. You wrote this yourself. Where did it come from? The initial premise of like, for the concept at least, was probably 10 years ago, I saw an article that linked to a web page where you could have an instant message with a artificial intelligent program. And it was like, I forget what it was called, but there's a few of them because I found that one and then I Googled and found some more. This might have even been pre-Google. I searched. There was a pre-Google? There was. You went to Lycos or AltaVista. Yeah, probably. How did you search back then? Netscape or something? Is that AOL? AOL, yeah, whatever, pre-Google. And then I found some other ones. But anyways, I had uh, an IM conversation with this artificial intelligent program. And for a second, it was really funny. I was like, hey, what are you doing? She's like, I'm just sitting here talking to people. And I was, and I, at one point, I was like, why are you so fat? And, she's like, and she said, don't be so cheeky. And I had this little exchange. It's like, had a buzz. Like, whoa, I'm connecting with this thing. And then after about 20 seconds, it sort of devolved into... You saw that you know that it was a very cleverly written program, but for those twenty seconds, that buzz seemed like an exciting idea for a movie, and so I wrote it down as an idea. But then it wasn't probably t- you know a couple years later that I actually you know it's like oh that's a cool idea for a movie, but that's not something I want to spend three years of my, of my life on because there wasn't meat there until like a couple years later something else made me think about it again. I started to think about it more as like a relationship movie, and you know like started to think more about the idea of having a very intimate you know relationship 
between a man and an artificial operating system and writing the character less as a program and more as a sort of a per- yeah a personality and a being in her own right and with you know feelings and wants and needs and desires in her own and and that's when i was i had the idea of oh i could actually write about relationships then it went from being like cool idea to something actually that i could write about infinitely in terms of relationships and you wanted to give google something to aim for right yeah like this is what i'm doing in fiction what are you doing? What you, I guess so. I it's a little like... Because Samantha, the program, also has the ability to change, which is where the movie sort of shifts slightly tonally. It gets a little scary from a human point of view to think that, you know, emotionally and intelligently, a program can become can sort of out-advance you in a way. Mm-hmm. It's scary. It's a scary vision. I mean, what's your relationship like with technology? Well, I mean, I think there, there, I was writing about technology, but I was also writing about relationships. And I think that that idea is not just exclusive to technology. It happens in romantic relationships and friendships, yeah. and, it, and it happens in life. And I think as much as I was writing about the, yeah. the technology, I was also trying to write about relationships and how we grow together and we grow apart. That was the scary bit, I think, for me. But at the same time, the film, you know, the, the satirical side of... If you walk around London, use the tube and stuff, and everybody's glued to their phones. Yeah. Even underground where there's no reception. Yeah. You're like, what are you doing? I mean, it must be the same in New York. But there's an element of the film that is poking fun at that kind of that, that sort of dependency that we're developing with technology. Yeah, maybe I don't know. I'm not sure. I can't tell if I'm if it's poking fun at it. But it, I can't remember anymore. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's funny because when you say that, I feel like no, I don't. I wasn't poking fun at it. But now I'm like, well, was I? I mean, certainly I'm calling attention to it, so it's in there. I don't think it was a satire though. I wasn't trying to make a satire. But I don't know. I mean, I, I, the other thing is that's interesting is I, as I talk to different people, different people get different things out of it, and different people react to it in a different way. And you know, some people are very emotionally engaged in Samantha, and other people, you know, see her as a, a program. And and I don't, I don't. There isn't any one way that I'm, you know, like I think they're all ideas I'm, I'm thinking about and things I'm trying to figure out. Um, I was just interested because it's a strange sort of near near future world that you create and and it's got a lot of comedy in it the fashions for instance Mm -hmm. the high-waisted trousers right as a man that's done gap ads before yeah i wondered where that came from presumably not gap well i mean the high-waisted pants thing the initial idea wasn't oh let's be funny it was actually more out of how do we create you know if we're making a movie set in the future we need to create a fashion that's of the future we can't look like 2013 Mm. and so it was like thinking about how fashion goes in cycles and how like the 50s come back in the 70s and the 70s come back in the 90s and the 80s come back and everything sort of loops back and i was thinking about the 20s and how they haven't really come back and so it seemed like a prime era and that's where the mustache came from and the name theodore is a very 1920s name and so i thought like as things come back in cycles maybe names from the 20s and, and yeah. the waist length some of the 20s could come back and then but then taking like 20s cuts but then adding fabrics that are softer and warmer and colorful and taking modern colors and putting them into 20s cuts that was actually the idea but then of course when we put them on Joaquin and started doing the fittings I was like it just made me smile to see Joaquin with his mustache and his glasses and his high waist and but it, it the initial inception of it was coming more from you know how are we creating this you know, the, the look of our future mm. for the movie the uh, Joaquin's character Theodore Twombly that's one hell of a name what names didn't make the cut if that's the one you ended up with <laughs> what names didn't make the cut uh, Philip Ali was the, the first name that, and then I was like no that sounds stupid that's almost 220 <laughs> 220s 
<laughs> no, I don't know what names. I mean, I don't know if I really questioned it I, that deeply. <laughs> Maybe I should have. I don't know. Have you seen 500 Days of Summer? And the reason why I ask is because there's a similar, you know, Theodore uh, works in this amazing concept where he works in a job where he re- writes letters for people, writes very emotional letters for people to one another. And so there's a similar thing to Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character in Five Hundred Days of Summer. Have you seen that? And I have, but I can't remember where he works. What? Greeting cards company. Oh, he writes greeting cards. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It wasn't a conscious. No, no, I must have. I must have ripped it off subconsciously. I don't know. Busted. <laughs> yeah. Damn it. Why? Why did you? I, why did you have to burst my bubble? I really thought I was imaginative and had made that up, and now you're shaming me. And <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Tell us about Samantha, the character, because obviously originally she was played by Samantha Morton, mm-hmm. uh, who you'd worked with before on Synecta Key, yeah. and is a director herself. So I'm imagining that the conversation about getting Scarlett Johansson to do the voice part was difficult, but easier because she understood those. I think she, I mean, for one, we're, we're really good friends and know we've not known each other for a long time, you know, but it, it was definitely a, a painful conversation to have but as as you know both as my friend and also as a filmmaker she knew that I had to do what I needed to do for the movie and was she called Samantha for Samantha Morton did you write it for her no no I mean I think I, I you know I didn't know who was going to play the role but I, I like that name and I think I, I like that name because I know Samantha and I you know but it wasn't like I'd written it thinking she was going to play it and but when uh just you know, I, I want to also make it clear that like even though she's not in the movie, her voice isn't in the movie anymore. She's very much in the movie because she was with us on set every day, and she was with Joaquin and I, and she is in Joaquin's performance. Like her DNA is in his performance, and if you talk to him, he, he would say she's as much of his performance as he is. And um, because the, the way we made the movie was this, you know, constant fluid conversation between the two of them i'd be fascinated to maybe on the blu-ray have the alternate take where you could have the second track uh-huh. and you can hear the samantha samantha but yeah maybe. i yeah i i probably won't I, we sounds never like do. a lot of hard work yeah or we yeah also we never do that kind of thing i don't but you can come over and listen to it i might do it myself is that okay, okay? yeah turn the noise off and then i'll do the voices for both okay is that i mean i've got your approval for that yeah i mean on my blu-ray you'll do that yeah okay cool I'll, I'll tell warner brothers if that's okay yeah um, more recently who kept the action figures for i don't play no game that i can't win because that's an absolute cracker from the past few years oh thanks a lot i think uh, i think Yao kept them all so i think his family has them but Yao kept everything. He has like crazy storage units with every prop from every video and like every absurd thing he made for you know you know some Nathaniel Hornblower outfit. To like he yeah he's got this amazing archive of absurdity. Who kept the dogs from Weezer? The Weezer. Um, who kept them? <laughs> we ate them after the video. That was our ceremony for <laughs> wrapping. Is that that's what we were told you're supposed to do? I think that's that's yeah. You that's the tradition. You don't know this, but that's how Spike finishes every film. You eat <laughs> the props. Yeah. Well, and, and when we finish this podcast, I'm going to eat you. <laughs> is that is that cool? I, I, I have no objection. It's I, raining. I have outside. that. I have that in my diary. So I, <laughs> okay. nothing better to do. So, so it's accounted for. Uh, my second question is: When was the last time you saw Christopher Walken? Wow, it's been a long time. You know, oh, actually, the last time I think I saw him, I ran into him. This is probably 10 years ago. And I was, went to see a movie in New York, and it was a premiere. I ended up sitting next to him, and it was, you know, it was really, you know, it was great to see him, and I love him. And, you know, I don't know him very well. And then in front of us, Muhammad Ali sat. And it was 
I mean, for one, just like I got to shake his hand. So just getting to meet Muhammad Ali was exciting. But also getting to see Christopher Walken meet Muhammad Ali was even more exciting because Christopher, you know, he's he's a very reserved guy and he's fun and we had fun making the video. But suddenly, like, I saw him as a child. He became this little child. And he's like, he introduced himself. and He's like, champ, I just want to introduce myself. I'm the biggest fan. He became this little boy meeting his idol. And it was so beautiful. It was so beautiful seeing that side of him. I think yeah, that's the last time I saw him. And um, But yeah, I, I, I love him and I, I want to work with him. I hope I get to work with him again. really hope Muhammad Ali is like a fan of the deer hunter. <laughs> yeah. Or <laughs> king, of, king of New York or something. Um, I found out something today that, that was just fascinating is that John Malkovich's real middle name is Gavin. But in being John Malkovich... It's Horatio. It's Horatio, right? Did Charlie, Charlie Kaufman explain why he changed it? He thought it was funny. <laughs> he thought it was funny. <laughs> It should have been Horatio Phil Ali in this film, I think. Yes. Anyway, that's for my voiceover. That, that, well, well, Phil Ali was also John, Malkovich, John Horatio Phil Ali Malkovich, but Phil Ali was silent. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I knew that already. I don't know why. Bugger. Sorry, I'm embarrassed myself. Spike, it has been nothing short of an absolute pleasure. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. I'm sorry if I was jet-lagged and tired and not as quick-witted as you two British gents. Well, we but- don't have the excuse of being jet-lagged. Uh, and we're normally quite terrible. <laughs> so, yeah, thanks for the time, and um, we'll see you next time. All right, good. Thanks, guys. Uh, pleasure. Okay, movie news time now, and uh, obviously the place to start is with the tragic death uh, last week of the great Philip Seymour Hoffman. Well, we were talking about John Cazale earlier and his his record of, of fantastic performances in great movies, and I think mm. Philip Seymour Hoffman may be remembered in something of a similar light because he hasn't been in a lot of dud films and when he when he's been in films that people perhaps don't remember with as much fondness like the big blockbuster stuff that he's done occasionally Mission Impossible 3 for instance where he was an immemorable villain um, he's brought something different to them he hasn't been just the guy in the film paying his dues doing the thing he's brought a bit of you know quality and what Philip Seymour Hoffman has and I think um, it's been mentioned before is he didn't you didn't know a lot about his private life I don't think people knew about necessarily knew about his struggle with heroin addiction and the problems that he's had he didn't know really you know where he'd come from or what he did when he was away from the screen so he was able to disappear into characters in in I know one of Ali's favorites the Todd Solon's film Happiness um, when he's working with um, Paul Thomas Anderson who loved to who loves those kind of character actors who can disappear um, he's just done great great work and I think he's someone that does really do his due diligence on on scripts and on directors and make sure that he gets challenging interesting projects and um, if you look at any number of his films I mean when people were talking on Twitter the, the, the day of his tragic death you know, there's so many different ways you could go if you wanted to watch a, a Philip Seymour Hoffman film mm. um, you know from uh, The Talented Mr. Ripley you know even Twister Along Came Polly Along Came Polly is a classic <laughs> I mean, there's. I mean, even he just lit up every film, state and main. And you, you just could go through the list. And um, I was lucky enough to interview him for his one and only directorial project, which was a stage play called Jack Goes Boating, which he'd performed in in New York, and he he trans translated it to the um, to the screen where he played a, a, a sort of a blue collar limo driver who was a bit of a pothead and loved his reggae, and he had these kind of crazy. Uh, sort of dreadlock kind of mangle tangle of hair on his head um, there was no vanity in anything he did um, he absolutely rumpled as you like when he needed to be and uh, and but he kind of brought that and again going back to John Cazale who we've talked about both of them had that kind of 
that pain behind behind the the visage you know they had they had something in themselves which they brought onto the screen and you know they absolutely held the frame it is really sad it's pat to say it's sad when somebody an actor that you care about and you that you love dies but I'm, we're going to miss his work in the years to come there's going to be films that he's not going to be in that he should have been in that would be you know worse off for it and i don't mean to overstate it because you know, it's been there's been a lot of words spoken about it, but um, I think uh, you know he was a really brilliant actor. It was amazing. He made sixty three. Well, he has sixty three projects listed on the IMDb, a couple of which are TV shows. But if you look at it, he was an amazing guy because he had a very um, what's the word? Very memorable appearance. You know, he was quite heavy set. He had the blonde hair. He had quite this you know very lived in looking face. Despite that all, if you look through his filmography, virtually none of his characters are alike. If you look at it, 1999, for example, you know he went from playing Rusty and Flawless, you know, very flamboyant performance, to Phil Parma and Magnolia, which is probably my favourite performance of his, you know, a very, very touching role. Uh, Freddie Miles and talented Mr. Ripley, then stayed main the year after that. Lester Bangs, that great cameo with Lester Bangs, and almost famous. Uh, you know, and it, I keep going back to his work with Paul Thomas Anderson, Punch Drunk Love, Magnolia, oh, pretty much all from Boogie Nights, and... Uh, on the night he died, I tweeted um, a, that amazing scene from The Master where he tries to process whacking Phoenix. And the the two of them, it's, it's just like watching the final of Wimbledon, or, you know, that used to use that old tired tennis, tennis analogy. It's just astonishing. And how he didn't win, and with all due respect to Christoph Waltz, who won that year for Django Unchained, essentially playing uh, Diet Hans Landa, uh, it was a bit of a travesty that, that he didn't win Best Supporting Actor, Hoffman, for that role. Uh, absolutely phenomenal, phenomenal actor, uh, and yeah, uh, you know, an absolute tragedy. Philip Seymour Hoffman, who passed away on Sunday. Okay, uh, moving on uh, to other movie news. Ali, what do you have? What this is a, a casting announcement that we received just after the podcast last week uh, was unleashed on the world. Uh, Jesse Eisenberg will play Lex Luthor in the upcoming Superman vs. Batman project, which, of course, as we all know now, is coming out in 2016. Also, Bruce Wayne's butler, Alfred, will be played by one Mr. Jeremy Irons. That is the news. That is the news. There is no more to say but that, I guess. Oh, well, there's quite a bit to say, but <laughs> I, I do wonder, you know, <laughs> it's a week old by the time you come out. Um, having said that, Jesse Eisenberg, Jesse Eisenberg as uh, as as Lex Luthor, um, that's really interesting uh, casting. Um, I think it's yeah, I think it's interesting casting. I think it uh, you know genuinely is. I mean you know he's essentially going to be playing Mark Mark Zuckerberg again, isn't he? But the Hollywood Reporter last night had a story. Uh, they said that uh, Tom Hanks was initially considered to play Lex Luthor, and that's a very that a that's a yin and yang situation there, isn't it? Joaquin Phoenix as well. Joaquin, yeah, he apparently turned it down. And he's forty, so yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It will come out, I guess, whether that stuff's true or not. Yeah, it's a big discrepancy between ages. Yeah, I think yeah, it's 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 interesting. It's interesting. I'm intrigued by this film. I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued by the casting of Jeremy Irons as Alfred. I'm intrigued that there's an Alfred in this movie. I'm intrigued that Batman slash Bruce Wayne has a big enough presence in this movie to require an Alfred. And I'm going to spend the whole film waiting for him to turn evil. Yes, <laughs> start uh, you know, yeah, yeah, breaking into banks via subways. There might be that as well. Yeah, it's just it's just intriguing. And the the recent addition of Chris Terrio, for example, who wrote Argo as the writer on the project, does that indicate that Ben Affleck is becoming more of a presence in the movie than perhaps he was when he was first cast? That perhaps it's more of a, a two hander. Mm, interesting. How does um, in the comic book uh, mythology how does Batman Bruce Wayne interact with Lex Luthor? 
Well, my, I'm not I'm not an enormous DC fan, but my understanding is that you know Lex Luthor is very much a Superman villain uh, yeah. when they've interacted in the past. Yeah, it's just interesting that it, you know I can see Jesse Eisenberg as that you know that techno techno terrorist kind of corporate magnate guy who might be mm. able to kind of run rings around. I mean, he's very good at that kind of kind of cerebral gymnastics thing. Well, there's no doubt that putting Lex Luthor and Bruce Wayne together in a room, both billionaire corporate magnates. That's a good way to kick start your plot, I imagine. And then Clark Kent does an expose on someone, and then it all kicks off, and then they all, you know, fight. Dan had an interesting theory about this, which was that he thought that, you know, with all the the, the fact that they trashed Metropolis, that Lex Luthor, uh, Lex Corp, could be in charge of the reconstruction of the city. And yes, that, that could be that is a popular theory. Mm, I like that idea potentially. Yeah, but you know, <clears throat> with computers, obviously, <clears throat> and social media. Yeah, absolutely. Intriguing. And we shall see what happens. And there's still there's still talk that this could still be a, a, a stealth Justice League movie. Apparently The Rock is very strongly in the frame to play a new version of the Green Lantern. So we shall see. We shall see. 2016. More will be revealed soon, I'm sure. Yeah, I have Uncharted news. It's kind of bounced back onto the map. Uh, it seemed like David O. Russell was going to uh, sort of adapt the, the video game, PlayStation video game. Uncharted with Mark Wahlberg as lead, uh, Nathan Drake, who's kind of uh, he's he's basically Indiana Jones, but a bit more modern, a bit more swaggering, a bit more modern, and uh, he's got a mentor, Sully, who is you know a grizzled kind of cool guy. But it's, it's it, they've got a great rupty. I love the video games, especially the second one. There've been three now. Yeah, they've been three, and they've been made by the same people who made uh, The Last of Us. Uh, these guys are called Naughty Dog, and they totally made their brand with these three really playable, really fun adventure games. They're great games. I'm kind of obsessed with them. Um, at first, I was very wary. I thought they were basically just Indiana Jones ripoffs, but they're, but they're not. They've got their own kind of flavour. Uh, I wasn't hugely keen on the Wahlberg, David O. Russell uh, kind of thing. I couldn't see it. The kind of films that, that David O. Russell has made before. Now... It has a new director, Seth Gordon, who you'll know as the guy behind Horrible Bosses, Identity Thief, and uh, considerably better than either of those, The King of Kong, which documentary. Proves his gaming metal. He knows his uh, apes from his plumbers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was talk of him adapting that into a film with Tom Cruise at one point, as the, uh, as I can't remember the guy's name. but The, the absolute crazy bearded... Billy Mitchell. Billy Mitchell. <clears throat> amazing character. Watch that documentary if you haven't seen it. Yeah, it's, it's an odd one. Seth Gordon, I'm not sure. They're obviously going for more of a comedic tone, getting him on board, and I can see why they don't want to this to be... This could easily just be an indie light, and it kind of will be no matter what they do, but I think they need to take some new take on it, and I think they're going down the comedy road. With that in mind, now we are going to be talking about who could they possibly cast if it isn't, say, Mark Wahlberg. I think a very good suggestion I saw online was Bradley Cooper. I think Mm -hmm. he has the swagger. I think he has the build. I think he also has the youth required. Lots of people, since the dawn of this game, have said Nathan Fillion. I think he's just a little too old now to to pull this off. Too old to begin the training. I would also say that Sully would be uh, very amusingly performed by a certain Bruce Campbell. Yeah, I saw that on Twitter a lot. Everyone is saying Bruce Campbell. I saw one guy saying Powers Booth, who may be too old, but I'd love to see Powers Booth teaming up with Bradley Cooper for a, a, a crazy Indiana Jones type film that's not going to happen I don't think maybe Bradley Cooper could but um, I'm excited I, I'm a bit wary um, Seth Gordon has not done an action film and it is I mean it's it's funny but ultimately there are action games with amazing set pieces in it so it needs action in it. it needs good action in it bro is there a love interest in this game there is there is it's actually a really good love interest insofar as that it's not like 
your typical babe and it's not a damsel in distress it's a journalist who can you know stand up for herself and knows what she's doing so to get that right would be key too there's very much a, a kind of a not a love triangle but there is a three it's a tri- it is a triangle of a sort between sully and these two all I want from this film is the train sequence from Uncharted 2 on the screen. It's one of the greatest set pieces I've seen in anything, and I've played it through so many times. You're going through the Himalayas, and there's this action scene. Everyone's attack helicopters coming at you, and you're under the train and on top of the train. It's just genius. It's so well constructed. So That just, sounds pretty cool. Just for that. I was going to say, it sounds a little bit like a sort of romancing the stone type of thing tonally. Kind mm-hmm. of a capery, rompy, romantic, fun that's thing. That's fair. Um, that might be that. That's that's the sort of thing you get behind. And with this big star like Bradley Cooper, that other people just, that, may want to yeah, watch it as well. Yeah, <laughs> that we've just introduced into the mix. But yeah, why not? Why my not new Bradley Cooper? Okay, do you want to hear my new story? I do want to hear your new Bradley story. Bradley Cooper signed up for Uncharted. Good, thanks. Let's move on. Okay. What is your new story? No, my new story. Um, actually, you know what? This weekend was the debut of the trailer for the Postman Pat movie, and I was moved to write a statement about this, which I'd like to read to you. May I do that? So it's like the Citizen Kane manifesto? A little bit, yeah. Do you um, have any choice? N- uh, no, you don't. Okay. Listen, shush. I'm not going to claim that Postman Pat and his monochrome sidekick were the only good things about my childhood. There was Trumpton, <clears throat> with its crew of conveniently rhyming firemen, Bagpuss, there was the frog conductor's ongoing struggle with addiction. There was the battle of the freaking planets. Yes, we were simple, but we were happy, and Postman Pat was a part of that. A big part of that. We cared when it was his birthday. We raged when a head made off with his lunch. And we fretted when Jess the cat only went and disappeared into the bloody fog. Sure, we sometimes wonder how so many things could go wrong in a village with only five people. But Pat was always there to fix them. Why is this important? Because this week, the trailer for Postman Pat the movie, You Know You're the One, came out. And I write this statement in an appeal for calm. Now is not the moment to bandy about words like charmless, abomination and retina napalm. It's not the time to describe its CGI as something out of a toilet duck ad. It's not even the time to draw attention to its god-awful music. Mm. Instead, let's ponder what Pat would have made of it. He would not have been a happy man. Um, let's not do that. <laughs> let's not do that. That was dreadful. Are you, are you, network. That was dreadful. Are you, uh, are you willing to take questions? Uh, yeah, hit me. Um, I, I, I didn't grow up watching Postman Pat. Well, I don't care what happens to him or Jess. You should. In fact, I hope Jess gets uh, spayed and neutered. Uh, <laughs> that being said, spayed and neutered. Yeah, why I mean, not? That's overkill. Why not? Why not? Uh, <laughs> That being said, the trailer did look dreadful. It's just, I mean, you know, okay, that was that was that was probably not much of an improvement on it, but I just, I, it, it upset a, me. And a I charmless abomination. It was just, a, yeah, it was. It's just awful. <laughs> Postman Pat and is in a talent competition. This is what we're talking about. Oh god, Postman yeah, that's right. Pat yes, is in a talent competition, and the name of the person judging him in the village hall where they live is Simon Cowbell. Why are we applauding this? Don't encourage them. They'll it's, only it's make another applause. one. I know, but they may misinterpret it. These are not people that can interpret irony. Not from bargain a with these people. <laughs> they cannot be stopped. They're relentless. I Phil is genuinely upset. I'm upset. I'm not one of these people. Who's like, oh, my childhood is sacrosanct. It must be ring fenced and minefielded. It's just terrible looking, and my godson is demanding to be taken to it. So I'm going to have to sit no, through it. It's just, just, just it's got a kind of a. It's kind of like what Wallace and Gromit would be like if it was created by Simon Cow. Cowbell. 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 It does look as if Sir Billy somehow merged into the real world and decided Sir Billy to has animate. kicked off a new, whole new uh, yeah, wave of, of really of cheap <laughs> animation. Yeah. I think they've gone back into time somehow and used the sort of 1950s technology. Let's look at the talent this. involved in this movie. Stephen Mangan, 
Should know better. Who I like a lot. I like a lot. Jim Broadbent. Who I like a lot. Should know better. David Tennant. Who I like a lot. Should know better. Mm. Rupert Grint. Mm. Who I like a lot. Mm. Rupert Grint's in it. Rupert Grint. I do feel like he has definitely got the uh, more unfortunate uh, end of the stick when it came to the post-Harry Potter careers of <laughs> those three. At the moment. At the moment. So far. But you may. this isn't going to help, though, is it? Yeah. If this film is any longer than 24 minutes, I'm going to gouge my eyeballs out. Uh, yeah. Are you attached to your eyeballs? Because they're about to be gouged out. Uh, 26 minutes. All right. Uh, okay, so that's the movie news time now. I think we should mention that the current issue of Empire is still on sale. It's our big X-Men Days of Future Past blowout with 25 covers. Choose whichever one you want, or hey, collect them all, as people seem to be doing. If you collect every single one, and I only realised this when I saw them all together, when you take the spines of each one, they match together to create the X symbol across all 25. You buy every cover of the X-Men issue, the future Sentinels, when they arrive, will not destroy you. They've pledged that. If you buy two sets... A descendant of your choice will come round your house and rant up a postman pad for, for at least half an hour. If you buy every back copy of Empire ever, it forms the word equilibrium. It does, actually, yeah. yeah. Amazing foresight. There. Seriously, though, it's a great, great issue, uh, and uh, we're all proud of it. So Yes, we are. We are. Yeah, I should reiterate, <laughs> yeah. it does have a 50-word review of my super ex-girlfriend. <laughs> Cannot say that enough times. Does well, it? Also, I got an email from a, a girl called Hannah from France who was listening to the podcast and just said I'm going to subscribe I you know I you know I I live in France I could get the Eurostar and probably be cheaper than the subscription mm. uh, she didn't say that uh, but anyway this is just a shout out to say thanks Hannah from, Hannah from France from on Paris. the basis of that 50 word review yeah pretty much that's it it has been amazing watching we'll people review it again next issue it has been amazing watching people on Twitter like you know the, the lengths which people are going to hunt down uh, covers you know obscure covers I rogue, love it the rogue cover is, is people love the rogue cover yeah. they love the um, uh, I think there are too many blinks for people's liking but Possibly. Can we sh- be sure that they're not being purchased by future Sentinels? <laughs> for foul purposes beyond our comprehension. Can we know. be sure of that? We can't be sure of anything, to be honest. Do you think Anna Paquin has a rogue cover? Well, She well, looks at wistfully, a single tear rolling down her cheek. Now I'm going to do the editing magic where I make a bloobly bleep and it kind of fades into my uh, conversation, one-man conversation monologue about Squarespace, our sponsor. Please feel free to listen to it. It shouldn't take longer than a minute and uh, it'll tell you all about how to use our offer code and make your own website, which will look very nice and pretty. Anyway, enjoy. Congratulations, you have my internal respect. You are listening to the science bit of the Empire Podcast, where myself, Ali the Editor, that's me, uh, tells you a bit more about our sponsor, Squarespace. Yes, you may have heard this before, so, you know, that's great. Uh, But, yeah, it's only going to take a minute. So, yes, Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it easy and fast to create a professional website, blog, portfolio, or online store for a free trial and 10%. That is one-tenth off your first purchase on new accounts go to squarespace.com and use the offer code empire that's just empire e-m-p-i-r-e so good reasons to use it it's got good seo it's very user friendly and it's got loads of designs that you can choose from and you can tweak it really easily and more than that if you do it for a year if you sign up for a year you get a free domain name which is handy because then you don't have a rubbish one and you get good support uh, 24 hours a day seven days a week because that's quite useful and yes it only costs seven dollars a month so anyway free trial and 10 percent off your first purchase with empire podcast very unoffer code empire thank you for listening now more of this lovely podcast enjoy it time for our next interview it's a doozy 
a ride, a ride, a ride. It's Matthew McConaughey who was in this week to talk about Dallas Buyers Club, in which he stars as a Texas man, Rod Woodruff, who was diagnosed with AIDS in the 1980s. He had just 30 days to live. He turned to illegal medication to stay alive and ultimately formed a subscription service for other AIDS victims breaking down his own homophobic preconceptions in the process. McConaughey has backed all sorts of awards for this uh, this role and he's been nominated for Best Actor at the Oscars. And Jared Leto, his co-star, has been nominated for Best Supporting Actor. They are their favourites and it's all based on a true story. We sent along Helen and James to talk to. Enjoy. You've been involved with it in one capacity or another, I think, since 2009. Is that right? It's about right. Yeah, about five five years ago. Wow. So it's taken quite a while to, to get it to the And it was around 15 years before that, before it got to me. I saw that Woody Harrelson was up for it at one point in the 90s, who you've just worked with. He, uh, I don't know how close that got, but he knew about it. I talked to him about it when we were making True Detective, and he was like, oh, I remember that. Yeah, I wanted to do that. I think Brad Pitt was around at one time. Ryan Gosling was around mm-hmm. at one time. So for whatever reason, it didn't get made, and it did get to me. And when it got to me, still no one was anxious to go get it made. Um, but I remember telling my agent, okay, well, just don't lose this for me. Don't don't make sure I stay attached to this. And then um, it was January of the year we made it. I said, you know what, we're going to make it this fall. And... Uh, we didn't flinch. We just stuck to that, even though we didn't have the money to really get it made. We said we were getting it made. Yeah. I saw there was some real kind of brinksmanship in terms of like the money wasn't all there, even a couple of weeks out from Oh, from five weeks out. The money that we felt was truly there, the people who had been saying the real money was there, turned out to be folly. There was no money. So all of a sudden we were sitting there five weeks out and we had zero. And there, you know, some people started scrambling for cash. Uh, a fertilizer company out of Texas came and threw some major cash into it. And even eight days before shooting, I get a call from Jean Mark, ballet the director, who obviously said, you know, look, minimum, I need 40 days to shoot this and $8 million. Now, for this story that y'all saw on screen, that's a quite a reasonable number. Mm-hmm. Well, eight days out, we were at 4.9 in a 25-day shoot. And he called me going, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but... If you'll be there, I'll be there. And I said, I'll be there if you'll be there. And so we showed up and we started. Wow, a leap of faith together. It's a hell of a thing. 25 days, though, that's quite that's quite brutal. I mean, presumably there's no time there for multiple takes, for, for looping dialogue, for reshoots. You've just got to wing it. Definitely no time for reshoot. You, but you don't wing it. What you have to do, and what I knew we had to do, was Jean-Marc and I had to get really every duck in a row in pre-production. So we would be on the phone every night or Skyping every night, going through the script, going through the scenes. I was writing. He was writing. We were sharing, working with the writers as well, coming up with. And I would show up each day with four or five variations on the same scene. Um, Because you go, okay, you know, going through the script and pre-production. This scene, we know what this means, okay? But this scene that comes two scenes prior to it, we already shot that. And we got something different out of it than we thought. So do we need that in this scene? What's the scene need to be about? So we didn't, we, we showed up and we were like, we were loaded with our options. And we mm-hmm. knew, we felt very secure early on that if we shoot this, what we have in the script, okay, we're going to come away with a fully realized story. So um, that was a lot of pre-production work because there was no time on the set to go, what's the scene about? There was no time to discuss what are we really going for here today? You did get multiple takes, but the camera wouldn't cut. So you just showed up in the morning and here's the camera, it's rolling, let's do it. And don't talk about it, show me. What's tiring for me as an actor is the stop, start, stop, start. The exit, then the re-entrance. The go to the trailer, anticipate coming back, gear back up to get ready. That's where I get fatigued. I don't get fatigued 
from working 14 hours a day. I do. I'll break a sweat and I sleep well at night, but I don't get, there's no anticipation because I'm in it. And I'd much rather go and stay in it like we did on this. And all of a sudden, 25 days later, someone slaps you on the back and says, congratulations, you wrapped. And you go, I'll be back tomorrow. And they go, no, there is no tomorrow. We're like done. And you go, <laughs> oh, really? And then I met the crew. And then I met Jared Leto. Um, so, you know, I mean, if you did it for six months, that might wear on you. But uh, no, there's, it's a different kind of, it's a good fatigue. Do you think the reason it took, you know, a while to sort of get made was because the whole AIDS topic, while still relevant, isn't the hot button, you know, that it was in the 80s? Well, period piece, AIDS drama, bigoted hero. <laughs> there's three things that tell anyone, how the hell am I going to sell that? Yeah. There's three things that tell anyone, well, I don't see how I'm going to make my money back, you know? Um, it didn't have all three of those things. In some way, to most people, spell out, I'm going to lose money. Um, I think everyone who read it said, I get it. It's an important story, but I'm not going to invest in it. Yeah. I'm not going to think I'm going to put up the money for it. So I understand why it was passed on. So, and I'm glad now that it was passed on so many times. Because you, I mean, famously in a lot of your films, you're sort of naked a lot from the waist up. Because if you're going to go to the gym that much, you know, you want to show it off. Um, in fact... Cunningly, our art director has, uh, has illustrated this, which we wrote in the magazine, in poster form, uh, which is a complete filmography of all of your stuff. Uh, That's great. So there you go. That's great. <laughs> Check that out. Donna Kill, we got it there. What's the other one over here? Contact? Yeah, yeah there's a bedroom scene that. Chainsaw Massacre, did I? Oh, I think he cut himself open on that. <laughs> Newton Boys? No, I don't think I had a show for Newton Boys. Really? Ed TV did one time, yeah, come in the shower. Tiptoes, that was funny. Uh, Sahara, did he? He might have. I think it was just a sleeveless shirt. Now, there's a guy that did. Rain of Fire, for sure. <laughs> for LT, I don't think I had my shirt off. You got a few extra ones, you know, extra mean, ones on here a, that a I didn't have my license. shirt off, but I, I get the gist. <laughs> we actually had an argument once in the office about who is the shirt off more, you or Hugh Jackman, but we counted up and he actually is much more shirtless than you are. So you, you're, you've been unfairly maligned, I think, in that respect. Well... You know, when you're playing a treasure hunter swimming in the Caribbean. It's hard to keep it top. All those the guys that I went and did my research on sure did run around with a nice tan shirtless. I was going to ask, have you, have you come across the uh, phrase reconnaissance? Yeah. This I has have. been this has been doing the rounds a little bit lately. Yeah, it, is that it. how it feels to you? I heard it you? a couple of years ago. Oh, really? And I was in an interview and a guy goes, I think he's a bit of a reconnaissance. I go, whoa, wait, go back. What'd you say? And he brought it up and I was like, that's got a great little ring to it. Just kind of comes off the tongue easy, so it kind of somewhere it kind of it, I guess it's stuck. But it's I mean it's certainly it's certainly in full swing. We saw you as well, a very brief but incredibly good scene in Wolf of Wall Street mm. um, with the with the humming. And I've heard a rumor that that's something you do before takes, and then that Leo insisted this goes in the movie. Is that is that correct? Uh, that is something I do personally for myself to to relaxes my voice, uh, gets me out of my head, you know, and I'll, I'll find a different rhythm. For different scenes and different characters, wow. that's what I was doing, particularly for that guy, Mark Hanna, and that, and I was doing it before his take, and we were we finished, had the takes. I was happy, Marty was happy, and it was Leonardo's idea. He goes, "Hey, hang on a second. He goes, "What's that thing you do before the scene?" And I told him, and he goes, "Will you put that in the scene?" And I was like, "Sure." So the next take, <laughs> put it in there, and then at the end of the scene, I was like, "Oh, hey, I should bring it back because now this young man gets my spiel." I just gave him, told him the. The, the lay of the land about how this business works and doesn't work. Now get them on the same rhythm and say, there we go. Wow. Do you still do it then? Has it now become something that people kind of fixate on too much? 
you know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm just you hear it. I, I I was doing it long. I was doing it <laughs> two decades ago. Yeah. You know, continue to something I do. Yeah. Fair enough. Nice. I mean, um, famously, Matt Damon does a very good you. Have you. Has he done his Matthew McConaughey for you? Oh yeah, did it for me right there when we just we just worked together in uh, Interstellar. He does a pretty good one. And do you do a Matt Damon at all? No. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything you can, I mean, presumably being a Christopher Nolan film, it's uh, locked down pretty tight. Is there anything you can tell us about Interstellar? Not much, except that it's the most ambitious film Chris has done. That's all I'll tell you. That's a bold claim. Yeah, because he's made some ambitious ones already. So is that the kind of film where they, you know, someone stands over you as you read the script? No. The first time? Oh, okay. No, it's just just a a request and, uh, you know, something fun for all of us to get involved to not share anything about it. Say, so, you know, go to the theater and check it out. Find <laughs> out. I'm speaking of films, but you've, HBO obviously have put on uh, True Detective, mm-hmm. uh, which is a fantastic drama. I've seen the first one. Uh, looking forward to watching the rest of them. Um, how did that come about? Was it just you wanted to work with Woody again? or No, no, that wasn't it. The first thing that happened was they came to me with the script and wanted me to look at the role of Hart, which is what Woody plays. Yeah. And I read the script, the first two episodes. The writing was sensational. Kerry Fukunaga, who was a director I was interested in working in, was going to direct. And I said, you know what, I, I'm in, but I want to be this guy, Rustin Cole. I went back, they said yes, and I said, well, you know, what about Woody for the other role? Mm-hmm. And uh, thankfully he came on. Wow. So how, how, how many episodes have you shot? Have you No, we're up? done. You shot yeah. eight episodes. Okay. And so it was like a, basically a 450-page script. Wow. And we've, we're done. They're in the can, and we're declaring and sharing them with everybody a week at a time on HBO. And the idea is that the if there's a second season, it will be a completely different story, different set of characters. Is that right? Yeah, it was a it's a finite thing for Woody and I, you know, and that was part of the reason that we came on to do it. You know, and didn't want to wouldn't have done it if it would have been like, hey, and if we want to pick this up, we <laughs> need you six months next year and yeah. the year after and the year after. No. Needed to be more free agents than that. So it was a finite six-month shoot. This is what all you'll be needed for. And so comes out next season, it'll be completely different characters. Yeah. Is it quite, I mean, as a storyteller, is it is it almost luxurious to be able to do that kind of long-form storytelling where yeah. you can develop over however many, was it 12, 13, Like I said, 450-page script, yeah. basically. The main, the main thing that was really fun that demanded a newfound patience on my behalf but turned out to be luxurious was... The first act stuff. First act stuff is where you introduce characters, you meet characters before the story really gets going, before the action takes the story and you're off and running. Now, that happens in films at around page 32. Happens one third of the way through the movie. And this, you know, we're getting, was it 450? A third of that is what? 150? Mm -hmm. Something like that. 150 page first act. So you get all this really yummy character development stuff. And the writing was so good. And to hold that for whatever it was, two months of shooting, uh, I did demanded some patience on my on my behalf. But I just remember telling myself, trust it, trust it, stay here. You don't need to do anything else, anything more. That next 2012 call, that when crash comes, who you don't know who that is yet, that'll come. That'll come. You turned down Magnum PI, didn't you, in 2008 or mm. around then? Mm. Was that sort of a conscious decision to actually you want to go in different directions to open up new I mean, doors? that was that not that exact moment. That was part of the where where my head was at that time. You know, that was that that was a good script. Had good meetings with the director. 
I liked Magnum growing up. They had a lot of reasons, a lot of pros and why too. But I was like, ooh, and if this is successful, there will be a two and a three. I was like, well, that's great. And I went, or is it? Because <laughs> then you lock down into something. And I was like, you know what? I don't know if I, really, I don't know if I want to be a part of a, a, a franchise at that point in my life. I said, I want to go experiment and go for some, some different experiences. I don't know what they're going to turn out to be. I found them in some independent films. They found me in some independent films. Um, and some studio ones have come along the way as well, along here. But uh, that was just where I was at the time. I was going, uh, I was looking for stuff that scared me a little bit more. The irony is that since then, people have been talking about sequels to The Lincoln Lawyer. They've been talking about sequels yeah. to Magic Mike. I mean, the, yeah. these non-franchise films could become franchise films. Could be, yeah. crazy. Look, we always knew with, with Lincoln Lawyer that that could have, be, possibly be a franchise. That that character, McCallum, emerges in different stories that Michael Connelly's written. Um, that could be an interesting one still. Uh, be nice to, you know, there was talk about myself and Brian Cranston mm. uh, coming back together for another one, which I'd love to work with him again. Yeah. Um, you know, Magic Mike, that's one that I don't think anyone probably thought sequel. I don't know if Channing and Steven thought sequel, but with the success of it, it sure made it easier to think about sequel. Yeah. You know? Um, I don't know where that sits at this point either, though. Um, but part of that was, you know, some movies are planned. You go, oh, if this works, it should be a sequel. Other ones, they just succeed really well. And you go, boy, we'd like to see the next one, if there could be a next one. Get your thinking cap on, you know. And they're also talking about a Magic Mike musical. Would you go and see it? Magic Mike musical? <laughs> That's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good idea. I mean, if you go onto your, your IMDb page, there's an awful lot of stuff on there. Uh, most of the stuff I think we find on IMDb is largely fictional. It says on there you're not fond of revolving doors. Uh-uh. <laughs> is this an actual thing? That's a real thing. There's one downstairs. I know. <laughs> I've had to go through it a couple of times, and I also went through the side door and just did twice the guy, because there's little, little valet ropes on the other side. Twice, just as I was stepping over, the guy comes and goes, oh, excuse me, sir, I should have had that. I was like, no, no, fine, I don't mind stepping over it. I'd rather go through it than that revolving door. <laughs> well, there we is, go. Is, is it just, is it, was there a childhood trauma involving a revolving door? It's or probably what I, that scene in The Godfather. <laughs> I don't like sitting with my back to the front door of any restaurant either. Final question then. I don't want to tempt fate, so I don't want to ask what you would say if you won the Oscar uh, in, a, in a few weeks, but... Do you have a disappointed face ready in case you don't? No, I have nothing ready. <laughs> I will be writing that live. Excellent. Well, best of luck. Thank, <laughs> Thank you. you very much. Time now to sift through the cinematic offerings this week and uh, separate the wheat from the chaff. Let's start with Dallas Buyers Club. In fact, Ali. I really like the sign-off from uh, Ian Nathan's review in the magazine, uh, which is, get this, Matthew McConaughey is currently the most exciting acting talent at work in movies. And I can't argue with him. I think he is spectacular in this film. It starts with former rodeo star, come drug addict, come kind of layabout. He's just a chancer who is taking bets and, and just being a total swine, really, to begin with. it's It shows him at his very worst, and you seem extraordinarily skinny. I think it's more because Matthew McConaughey, you so know him as the uber Adonis that leans back to back with other people on the front of romantic comedies that you are so shocked by his visual appearance but it's not one of those films where you you think oh it's because he looks skinny that I'm affected by it it is hard graft some amazing energy and real enthusiasm for this role he obviously loves the character of Ron Woodruff who is a complicated man to say the least who discovers as said that he has 
you know, he is HIV positive, but he refuses to, to accept it lying down. But my, my biggest thing for him is the moments where it's just him by himself, when you see him trying to come to terms with his own mortality, who he is, he suddenly has to, despite being a bit of a scumbag, work out who he is. And seeing him in, you know, he's in a parked car, he's at a pullover off the side of the road because he is, he's coughing so loudly and he's, he, he's so weak. And you're just seeing this man crumble, and he seems so vulnerable and so real and so sincere. I just think that McConaughey is... We've always known he's had great talent, but this is the film to see him flex his acting muscles. It isn't just a performance film, though. Uh, it does tell a real-life tale, and it is a very interesting one about how mm. it was... It, it, can you not just, oh, isn't AIDS sad? It's rebelling against the system, against how uh, the American government deals with uh, drugs that may be better for you on approved yet. So there is, it is a bit of a pharma drama. But the other person to, to call out on is obviously Jared Leto, who's getting a lot of attention to playing a, uh, a transgender HIV-positive uh, sufferer as well, uh, who helps with this Dallas Buyers Club where he, uh, he goes over to Mexico and picks up these illegal drugs and uh, then sells them but doesn't quite sell them he kind of says join my club pay me $50 or whatever mm -hmm. it is and then I will give you as a perk these drugs and that's how they kind of negotiate the uh, legal rules about not being able to buy these drugs legally uh, and yeah Leto is very good he, he's obviously very intense it's a very he throws himself into the role and he's, he's really deep in there and I, I forgot that it was Jared Leto he really fills fills the part. Well, he forgot he was Jared Leto. He turned up on on set uh, for the twenty five day shoot in character and didn't break character for twenty five days, according to the people who worked with him. Uh, apparently, Matthew McConaughey only met Jared Leto whenever they stopped filming for the very first time. <laughs> so it's a remarkable degree of commitment. It's a remarkable degree of commitment from McConaughey as well, who is absolutely stunning. And one of the reasons why it shocks you is it just literally just throws you in to. Ron Woodruff and the yeah. weight loss, and he looks gaunt and horrible. And the first ten minutes are a bit rough. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think this is a very, very good film, a very effective film, um, brilliantly acted. Obviously, this has been the script's been bouncing around Hollywood for twenty years. No one would take a chance on it. McConaughey has been trying to make this film for about six or seven years, easily, uh, and it just so happened that it it coincided, I guess, with his. Uh, was it McConaughey? Is that what they're they're calling it these days? Um, as you know, he he reinvented himself. I mean, ten years ago, this guy was making Sahara with Steve San. Now he's making Dallas Buyers Club with Steve San. Uh, it's it's a it's a very very different uh, kettle of fish. He's absolutely brilliant, and I think he may well win the Oscar. Uh, my only problem with the film itself, it's a little bitty. It's a little episodic. There's a lot of story to cover. There's a lot of there's a huge time frame here, and it you you do feel at times that it is ticking boxes. No, I was just going to ask how the direction is because I've heard a lot about the acting. It's fine, yeah. Directing. It's, it's directed by Sean Mark Fallet, yeah. Um, I felt it was a bit lurchy. It is lurchy. I mean, it's, it's, it's episodic by definition. It covers a big. Yeah. I wonder if, if um, <clears throat> the tone changes. It becomes, you know, it becomes almost like he's 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 traversing the world and he's reinvented himself as this kind of um, pirate entrepreneur, almost kind of figureheading this this organization and, and compassion. Bringing compassion and help to these 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 um, aid sufferers, um, but it started off somewhere whole whole different place, and the arc sort of jolts slightly along the way. It goes it travels a long journey though, so you can't really blame it for that. It would be difficult to to transition. No, of course not. But it it's, it it does feel a bit jerky, and uh, and and as you say, Biddy, the transitions between scenes are very very abrupt. Um, that being said, it's very entertaining as well. It's it, it's it's not. A movie that 
hinges on sentimentality or value sentimentality, I think. Um, major characters die off screen, that sort of thing. So it's it's a very, very interesting uh, it, film. It's a uh, it's notable. I just bring this up because it's curious the way the world's changing. It's already being released this week in the US on Blu-ray and DVD. Obviously, it was released earlier in the US, but it's funny how an Oscar, something mm. in the Oscar race, for us, we're just watching it and it's already being watched by people who didn't have a chance to see it in the select cinemas in the US mm. uh, can buy it on DVD. I guess it doesn't have that that kind of big, you know, these these sorts of quote unquote issue movies often crescendo with a big courtroom scene or a big dramatic denouement, and 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 this isn't really interested in that. And I kind of applaud it for for, for kind of eschewing that that route. Mm. Philadelphia. I mean, there were there were a spate of movies at the, the height of the AIDS kind of panic, I suppose. Um, Philadelphia being being the kind of the main crossover hit, and and this has shades of that. It feels like a movie almost slightly out of time, not just. Not thematically, obviously, because AIDS is still a big problem, but um, just 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 feels sort of unusual amongst this year's Oscar films to yeah, me. Yeah, I do wonder why it took twenty years for someone to, to really invest in this movie. I do wonder if the Ron character Ron Woodruff, the fact that he is such, especially at the beginning of the movie, such a staunch homophobe, and maybe major major actors were kind of oh, I don't know really if I want to be seen to be playing this guy, but McConaughey absolutely goes for it, and there's there's a redemption for him. There's he does come around. There's, there, you know, there's a, there's a softening certainly of his attitude, but I don't think the film ever really, even at the end, says this guy was a good guy. I don't think it says that. It says he was just a very complex character. I agree, and, and it reminds things. me of Denzel Washington's role in Flight last year, where yeah. you know it doesn't say, oh, this is a, this is a hero. This is someone that we necessarily need to, you know, look up to morally speaking. Um, mm. Just a complex guy. Here he is. Agreed. Uh, so we gave Dallas Buyers Club four stars. So pop along and see that this weekend if it takes your fancy. Uh, next up is Robocop, Jose Bedelia's remake of Paul Verhoeven's 1987 classic about a Detroit cop who is maimed slash killed and then brought back to life as a cyborg police officer, part man, part machine, all cop. Very exciting news. This one stars Joel Kinnaman, Gary Oldman, Samuel L. Jackson, Michael Keaton, Abby Cornish. Nick, it's a great cast. It's a it's a good director as well. Jose Padilla is a Brazilian guy who did the two Elite Squad movies, which are both worth watching. First one more than the second one. To his credit, he's trying to do something different here. Um, they're not just trying to do a straight remake of of the Paul Verhoeven original. They are uh, trying to do more of a psychological drama and about the man inside the machine and and all this stuff. So it's a different film uh, to the original. There's a long stretch where you see Robocop being designed and refigured and people having long conversations about the ethics of the situation uh, it doesn't work ultimately it's uh, I found it quite boring it's as tedious as that sounds it's, it's <laughs> basically you're watching a, a series of mid-level marketing meetings and it's really 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 dull if you've ever been in a mid-level marketing meeting and uh, I think we all probably have yeah you want to you want to serve the public trust protect the innocent and just get the hell out of there you want to kind of try and see it on its own merit, which is difficult because it keeps pulling you, but it keeps reminding you that it's a remake. It opens with the um, the theme from the original. Yeah. Uh, it keeps dropping in lines of dialogue, and it keeps reminding you that Badly. it's nowhere near as good. Badly, yeah. yeah. Somebody Badly. does say, "I would buy that for a dollar," and it's 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 just not effective in the way that the first one was very brisk and kind of raw and no nonsense. This takes ages getting anywhere. It's so melodramatic. There's all these scenes with his family that are just tedious and, and go nowhere, really. 
Uh, the action is not particularly well done. There's too, way too much CG. Uh, Robocop is leaping around on top of Ed 209s like there's no tomorrow. And, you know, it's it's a good cast, but it's not a strong script. It's a good cast, but I don't think they're well served. I think Samuel L. Jackson, for example, uh, in a in a in a nod, a sop, I, w- I I think to the satirical elements of the the first movie with the uh, with the news re- the newsreaders, the futuristic newsreaders. Um, Samuel L. Jackson plays this sort of Bill O'Reilly type character in the in the future. He has his own uh, TV show, very political TV show, and basically he bookends the movie and he appears now and again throughout it. And if I didn't know better, if I didn't know, for example, that Samuel L. Jackson had been cast while the film was shooting you'd think that he had been brought in at the 11th hour because it didn't make any sense and they needed something to bookend it and kind of try and salvage something about the plot. Um, And Sam Jackson's been stranded in front of a green screen and just has to rant really, really badly. I mean, this film, frankly, uh, intriguingly, we seem to be off the uh, a little bit off the beaten path with our review. We'll come up with the star rating in a, in a second, but other uh, other websites, other publications are are giving this a bit of a pass. Four stars, four and a half stars, three stars. You know, it's better than you expected. This film is awful. It is absolutely awful. It was a hair's breadth away from getting one star. Uh, Nick and I had a wonderful time deconstructing its sheer badness uh, in a curry house after the film it, it is it's not quite so bad it's good it's so bad it's bad all the actors are stranded Joel Kinnaman who um, is very very good in the killing is dreadful here uh, absolutely dreadful uh, the film is po-faced it's over long it gets virtually everything the original film got right mm. uh, wrong. ultimately it's not a crime film anymore the original was the, the, the writers of the original keep saying it's it's a western you know, but done as a kind of sci-fi film with this guy sorting out the corrupt town, in this case, futuristic Detroit. Mm-hmm. And there's no sense that this Detroit is a mess. There's no sense that there's there's crime running rampant. Mm. There's really no crime in this film whatsoever. But the the satire of the original was was laser guided, and this is just oh yeah, it's a bit about U.S. foreign policy. It's a bit about oh really man against machine. It's just misguided from the off. I I thought it was. Pretty terrible. It's in focus, which is fine. There are a couple of nice moments. There's a nice uh, opening in Tehran. Jackie or Haley is fine as a as a, uh, a robo nemesis, uh, if you will. But ultimately, it's extraordinarily dull, yeah. and that's for me unforgivable. There was potential. Darren Aronofsky at one point was going to do a Robocop set thousands of years in the future, which mm-hmm. would have been intriguing. And I'd love to see what Neil Blomkamp would have done with this. And we might actually get to see that because the uh, his new film Chappie, which has just finished shooting in South Africa, is effectively Robocop, um, with Shelter Copley basically playing the robot. Yeah, so we'll see what, yep. that, what that turns out like. Robot prawn. But this uh, this is not good. Not good. It is better than Robocop Three. It is. What but a, not what, by much. What about Gary Oldman? Uh, Gary Oldman, I, you know, and I'm not just saying this because he's on the show. Uh, probably one of them on the show, I think, because of this. He's actually the, one of the few people who escapes in this with any dignity. Uh, he, he plays Dr. Dennett Norton, who's essentially the, the, the Victor Frankenstein who creates Robocop, and he has different pangs of conscience as Michael Keaton as the evil CEO uh, of Omnicore, uh, not OCP, Omnicore, uh, keeps t- turning the screw on him and, and forcing him to do horrible, horrible things, unethical things uh, uh, to, uh, <laughs> to, uh, to Alex Murphy. And uh, yeah, he comes out of it okay. He's fine. He's a he's a very sympathetic, relatable presence, um, and I, I think he's he's all right. The problem is the movie. I, I honestly do think that this is going to be a movie that's going to be derided in, in years to come. There's a scene early on where a man 
who's had uh, his hands amputated in a, in a horrible accident, gets robo hands grafted onto him by Gary Oldman. And there's a scene where he actually literally tries to play the acoustic guitar. And there's so many scenes where you just go and you, you can just undercut that with so many lines. It's like, oh, great, Doc, I can play the guitar, but I couldn't play it before, etc. But he does play the guitar. And there's this whole scene where Gary Oldman's going, no, you have to feel it. You have to feel the emotion. It's a bit airplane, music. That bit. It's a bit airplane. And then Michael Keaton comes in and he goes, hey, that's a great piece you're playing. And you're just going, really? Really? I get to see Robocop. Robocop. I just checked the ticket. Yes, this is Robocop, but this is not Robocop. Now, where's my Robocop? That's Robo Clapton. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Sadly, at no point does Gary Oldman shout, Get me every bot! Which <laughs> yeah, I would have uh, you say sadly. <laughs> That's probably, it's probably a good it's thing. probably in the script. It's probably a good point. thing, indeed. Uh, Robo, not much cop. Two stars for that one. Uh, okay, then we have uh, Ray Fine's directorial follow up to Coriolanus. The Invisible Woman tells the true story of Charles Dickens' relationship with Nellie Turnan and stars Fine's himself and Felicity Jones. This is Ray Fine's second directorial effort in a row, and it wasn't. He wasn't due to to play Charles Dickens in this film. He had someone else lined up. I'm not sure exactly who, um, but he took over the role, and he's fantastic. Um, he's really good on both sides of the camera. Actually, he's got a real feel for um, for an ensemble cast and how to how to get the best out of them. He's got um, Kristen Scott Thomas here alongside him, and Felicity Jones, who plays, as you mentioned, Nellie Turnan. Now, this is a story about. The Invisible Woman, Nellie Turnan, who is a young, a young woman, a young actress, in fact, not a particularly good one, who Charles Dickens met and was smitten by in about <laughs> 1857. Schmitten. They were sh- they were smiting. He was schmit. And uh, it isn't a particularly flattering portrayal of Dickens, I have to say. If you're if you're if you're a lover of Great Expectations, Hard Times, Bleak House, etc., etc., Copperfield, you know you'll know him. You'll know his prose, and and uh, it's. He's a one of one of our greatest writers, but he's not necessarily the greatest of human beings, as, de- as depicted by Ray Fiennes in this film. He is portrayed by Fiennes as a sort of slightly slightly immature, kind of boyish character, and he he conveys his 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 kind of youthful enthusiasm when he's di- when he's directing a stage play at the beginning, which is when he meets Met- Nellie Tynan for the first time, and kind of starts to fall for her. He comes across as you know, it's fun, kind of larger-than-life, flamboyant character. But as the film develops and it's it's handled, very the pace is very measured. This isn't going to be everybody's cup of tea. This film because it is quite a kind of polite, well-paced, handsome film. The period detail is beautiful. The costumes by Michael O'Connor, who's Oscar-nominated for his costume design work, are fantastic, and the period detail is extraordinary. Um, but as it comes along, a sort of a sense of melancholy settles on the film. And it's what it needs, because it's a very sad story. Nellie Tennant was basically a woman... She's a modern woman, basically. She's kind of a woman out of time in this. And uh, she knows that falling in love with Charles Dickens, a married man with, I think, about 47 children, um, could spell disaster for her. And every once in a while, her mum, Kristen Scott Thomas, comes along to remind us that the stakes are very, very high for her, and less so for Dickens. The other invisible woman, um, and neither of them are actually invisible, it's worth mentioning, um, is the wife of uh, Charles Dickens, played by Joanna Scanlon, Catherine Dickens. She suffers in silence for most of the movie, but the scenes that she has where she expresses her angst and her inner turmoil... There was a point where Dickens actually writes a letter to the Times about his relationship, about the rumours around his relationship, which she has delivered to her by her son, and it's an it's a it's a masterclass in sort of mute ang- agony, 
she's very, very good, Joanna Scanlon, and you know her from um, The Thick of It and uh, one or two other things. Um, I really like this movie. As I say, I don't think it's going to be necessarily everybody's cup of uh, of, uh, of Earl Grey, but it has a um, it's a lovely period detail, and uh, it's got a real sort of sense of sort of poignant poignancy and sadness to it. I have a relevant fact. Hit it, hit it. <laughs> I interviewed uh, Gary Oldman uh, in December, and I asked him what his favourite film of the year was, and he said The Invisible Woman. Did he? That's a fact. That's interesting, not Robocop. <laughs> no, Robocop's technically this year. So okay. is the Invisible Woman. Good point. So is the Invisible Woman, yeah. Although he probably saw it last year on a BAFTA screener, because yes, it is up for BAFTAs. That Maybe he's true. allowed to just come on set and watch them doing any film he wants. Maybe Gary Oldman. Oldman has his own year. That starts on a completely different day to everyone else's. <laughs> I'd like to think so. At the very yeah. least he deserves. Absolutely. He can take a pill for that. Do ask and, and uh, yeah, I, I, so we gave it four stars, and I would go along with that. I've seen it twice now. Um, I've got to be honest, the second time, it's it, it it felt more deliberate, should we say, than it did the first time around. But it kind of finds handles it very very well, and he's got a real real eye as a director. I'm looking forward to seeing more of his stuff. It's going to be interesting to see uh, what it does at the box office. So with lots of people going, oh, this will be a new Fantastic Four movie. <laughs> we should go and see this. And then see how many people want their money back halfway through. I well, no, um, could always say she's in it. You just missed her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's really good in that. Jessica uh, Alba was amazing. In <laughs> uh, also out this week is the uh, animated movie Mr. Peabody and Sherman, which we gave three stars to. Normally that would be it for the Empire Podcast, but we do have time for one last interview. Uh, as I said already, he's one of the few people to emerge from Robocop with any dignity intact. He is a national treasure. He is a star of Bram Stoker's Dracula, JFK, Sid and Nancy, The Fifth Element, Leon, True Romance, Batman Trilogy, Harry Potter series, you name it, Call of Duty. <laughs> he's been in it. It's the brilliant Mr. Gary Oldman. And he was talking to Nick and Helen. Enjoy. Thank How are you, you doing? I'm good, I'm good, yeah. This is a special podcast for us because I think it's the first time that we've had two actors being interviewed on it that have played brothers. And I'm talking about Matthew McConaughey, uh, uh, who I believe yes. you played twin brothers with. We, Yes, I was his smaller <laughs> twin. This is Tiptoes. Yeah. Tiptoes. In which he played a dwarf. I did play a dwarf, yeah. How was that experience? It was, um, you know what, it was, it was a, I must say, it was a little, it was a little strange... It didn't turn out as well as we thought it might. It's one of those where you... I mean, it's all a roll of the dice, I guess. But, you know, it's not my finest hour on celluloid. But um, it was strange because I spent all the shooting time on my knees with... And I worked with, with real little people, you know. So they would say, OK, that's, you know, one hour lunch... And I would stand up. Peter Dinklage is in that. He is. Have you? Do you yeah. watch Game of Thrones? You know, there's certain ones you watch. I, you know, I'm a madman addict. <laughs> Boardwalk Empire, but I do catch it. I do catch it from time to time. The and uh, yeah, he's a he's a terrific he's a terrific actor. Yeah, Matthews. I mean, Matthew is enjoying an incredible run. You They're know? calling it the Sons. The McConaughey. Yeah, it's like the Renaissance, but with McConaughey. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, he's also absolutely incredible in this TV series. Mm. True, true detective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's enjoying. Um, he's enjoying a great, great run. He's gonna. Be, I, well, I, I think he's gonna win the Oscar. I'm absolutely certain of it. 
And you've seen uh, Dallas Buyers Club. Yeah. What did you make of it? I loved it. I thought it was terrific, terrific movie. I was recently at the Palm Spring Films Festival. I presented to, to Matthew. He won a Best Actor prize there. I, I read, by the way, that you and uh, Samuel L. Jackson, who's obviously also in this film, have a sort of uh, a running tally of who's got the lifetime box office, you know, uh-huh. because you've both been in such yeah. enormous, enormous films. Who, who, I mean, this obvious, this film obviously just, you know, keeps you le- on level pegging because you share it. But who, who's ahead at the moment? I'm ahead at the moment. Oh, very good. Yeah. And then I have, I'm coming out in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. So I've got the edge. Just cement that lead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> For what it's worth, you know. It's a fun little, you know, to be the biggest grossing box office actor in, in history. It's a nice, mean. nice thing to put on your CV, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. When did you and Samuel L. Jackson first cross paths? Because you were both in True Romance. We were in the hotel yes. at the beginning when I shoot them all and take the drugs. <laughs> and I shoot him in the back. In fact, I kill him. That's the first time that I met. And he had a tiny little, tiny little part in that. It, oh, it what originally it was. It was a longer scene. It was a sort of a, a bigger scene, censored. <laughs> yeah, I shoot an Alsatian. I shoot the dog as well. So I mean, they just you're thought, a bad man. Yeah, isn't it terrible? You can shoot all these people, but you can't shoot a dog. It's, it's a can't. bizarre double standard, isn't it? You've it always really got to is. save the dog. Always got to save the animals. But yeah, that was my first. That was my first run in with with Sam and I have not seen him since until until 2012 and I ran into him said said hello but well I mean what a talk about a, a run you know as uh, amazing sort of uh, amazing stuff he's done since you don't shoot him in this film in Robocop I do not don't shoot I'm, anyone in this film no I'm no I'm no I'm, I'm nice no, no, compassionate Cuddly almost. I'm, I'm cuddly, yes. I'm sort of, uh, you know, I mean, Robocop can go do what he, what, he, what he needs to do, but he always has to come back to that lab. Mm. Get refueled. And get refueled, yeah. So he depends on me. I don't know if you ever go on YouTube, but there's a video on YouTube which is called uh, 20 Gary Oldman Accents in 60 Seconds. And mm. it's this amazing montage of your various voices. And you are a g- genius when it comes to doing voices. And you're quite a good impressionist as well, I gather. Yeah, I mean, I can do a few impressions. I mean, I used to do... As a kid, I used to do... I, I used to do Beatles as a kid, you know. Do, you know, do them all. Can you do them all equally well? Or do you... I don't is there know, one that you struggle I mean, with? Um, I suppose, you know, Paul's more like that, you know. And then uh, Ringo's down there. And George used to talk out the side of his mouth like that, didn't he? You know. And then there's John. It's a lot, you know, it's harder. <laughs> but I used to sort of, um, I used to sort of, do, yeah, I impersonate people as a kid. Yeah, I'd never seen this thing. Yeah, you, I mean, there's, I'm sure there's lots of stuff out there that I, so I'll have to check it out. 30, what is it? Is it 20 Gary Oldman accents in 60 seconds. Okay, all right. And someone's done a bit of a, I think it's called a mashup. I, I interviewed you in December and you mentioned that Christian Bale on the Batman set would sometimes do Tommy Cooper. Yeah, I mean, he, um, I think it was Christian's way of coping with being in the suit. It, you know, I mean, he's very serious. You know, I mean, he's, he comes very prepped and you know ready to work but when we would hang around and you know between takes and things 
he he would just do he'd, he'd be silly and i think it's just his way of uh of getting around the fact that he's got this thing stuck to his head um and it would just distract him did you do a tommy cooper off we didn't do a tommy tommy we didn't um <laughs> we didn't do a, a cooper off I'm just having visions now of Batman with a sort of fez on his head. A fez. <laughs> yeah. awesome. I could have come in the window like that. <laughs> oh, this film needs to be made. Get, get him back. Get everyone back. <laughs> For Superman versus Batman, just a yeah. Yeah. Thing on his head. Um, just speaking of YouTube, it reminded me your Thanksgiving message for uh, for Jimmy Kimmel. Which basically degenerated into a food fight. Yeah. <laughs> How uh, did they pitch you that? You know to what? You? It's I've done a few things on Kimmel. I'm I'm a, I'm cheap and local, <laughs> and they call me up and say, "What's what? You know what you do in this afternoon?" Because I'm actually really ten minutes from the studio, and so uh, I'm always good as a, I'm al- also I'm always I'm a good backup. You know, if I'm around in town, and if they get they want someone and they can't get them, they can always call me and say, "Will you come in?" They're very they're, they're very sweet. I've done a whole a whole sort of bunch of them, and they just said, "Would I come in and uh, do the Thanksgiving?" Thing? I, it's like one of the Kimmel calls. I go, I I don't even know what it is until I get there. I go, so what do you want me to do? And they said, "Would you read this and smash some, you know, the setup?" And yeah, okay. Was that a one take deal? One oh one take. Didn't have another table. Just they, off camera. They, I think, yeah, they actually they had more food, but um, I went for it, and they were happy with the with the uh, with with the th- and it was. I had it, you know. I wore. I think I wore my own shoes, and I had gravy, and mashed potato, and it was and it was. I couldn't shower until I got home, and it, you know. That f- smell of like food on you—it was oh, that, that's yeah. not fun. Being stuck in LA traffic with gravy in your shoes. No, my gra- just, gravy yeah. in the car. You know, no. no so every Thanksgiving now, you're gonna swerve <laughs> the dinner. Just, <laughs> just get yeah. Flashbacks. Ma- to maybe it will be a running thing. You never know with Kimmel. They. We in the office are big fans of Air Force One. I wanted to ask. Last year kind of marked a bit of a reunion. And you and Harrison yeah. got back together to do yeah. Paranoia. Yeah. What was it like getting back together with him? And is he, is he someone that you're close to at all? I had not seen Harrison since. It was, fu- it was nice to see him again. It was just sort of... He had... He had also... It mellowed. I, you know, when I worked with him originally, he was the biggest box office star you know in the world i mean in history at that point i think you know he he had outgrossed um you know people like spencer tracy and those great sort of leading men um gable you know he was the sort of number one guy and i guess with it with that he's he's sort of he was the he he ran the show you know, his shoulders were open, and you know he was the guy. He was the main. He was the, he was the main guy, the alpha dog, and uh, which is fine. He's older and sort of mellowed, and I found him nice to sort of connect with him again. And uh, 
lots of jokes. Told lots of jokes. He had yeah. a whole joke book. Yeah. Yeah, the, the two of us actually interviewed him quite recently for for Ender's Game, I think. And he's 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 a really funny guy, very quietly sort of under the radar. Yeah, it's sort of just very dryly he funny. just sort of yeah, it just under just under the radar. You know, it's that humour. Yeah. The the potato thing earlier reminded me of something that I read that. I think it's a compliment, but it's the weirdest compliment I've ever heard. And I, I wanted to sort of see if you'd heard it. Mel Gibson apparently compared you to Mr. Potato Head. Yeah. Because he said you could just take faces on and off. Yeah. Which I thought was was a brilliant... I think yeah. it's a compliment for an actor. That, that seems that seems good to me, right? Yeah, I thought it <laughs> Yeah, I thought it was. He said to me, you know, Beethoven, he said, ah, oh, mate, it's easy. He said, it's a hair roll. It's a whip part, you know, <laughs> it's all in the hair. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he called me Mr. Potato Head. Yeah, yeah. that was... Uh, you didn't try and pull your nose off or... Didn't try and pull my nose off, but... God, what's up? What's he's, what, What's up with him, huh? Mel? And it's such a sort of... Uh, I, I think it's... I don't know. He's just kind of really... He's, he's just shot himself in the foot. And it's a shame because... Um, uh, he's a, I think he's a wonderful filmmaker... I think I'd like to see more. I'd like to see more. I'd like to see more of him. Well, to go from one enigma to another, you worked with David Bowie last year. It's not Dave. many people who can say that they see him or. I, I've been friends with David yeah. for thirty years. I've known him a long time. Yeah, I'd um, I'd lunch with him recently in New York. Um, that was great. He's, I mean, he called up and said, "You know, I can give you, you know, a, a, a bottle of pop." And a sandwich, you know. Will you come and do this? And and as it happens, again, it was the location. It was I, you know, it was like t- it was five minutes from where I live. It was it was it was great. I just got in the car and went down the hill. Did so you did you get your bottle of pop? I got my pop. Yeah, <laughs> and my sarnie. So as long as it's near your house, you will literally work for sandwiches. This is this is probably. Uh, I work for. I work. I'm very. Che- if it's near the house, I'm very cheap. I, you, you, yes, you come and shoot at the house. It's even cheaper. <laughs> I'll give you the sandwich. <laughs> um, sounds like a heck But of a David deal. is um, is, uh, I, I mean, he's such a phenomenon, isn't he? He's a legend. I just like the idea of you two guys hanging out. It just that just seems like the epicenter of cool. The sort of Brom, the, the the Bromley boys, the South London boys. Yeah. Do you watch Game of Thrones together? Yeah, Gary, Gary, do you like you like sushi? All right, let's go there. Yeah. Um, and we do. I must say, we do reminisce when we get together. We talk about the old London and England and the old days, and yeah, we kind of walk down memory lane. I wanted to ask about. Uh, Directing plans. Uh, have you, you've been talking for a little while about getting back to that. Is that moving on any further? Or is it still sort well of in the future? I have. I've, well, I have a, a script that I've been out with for all, a year and a half. I'm still trying to kind of raise money for it. Mm. Very difficult. It's very difficult. Really I've tough got, times. Though. Yeah. Is I've, it is it an expensive script or is it? Bigger than Nil by Mouth? It's bigger than Nil by It's 19th century. Yeah. And uh, I have Rafe Fines attached to, to for the lead. And um, and uh, it, it, I, I mean, I, I was about to actually go out to Philip Seymour Hoffman. Oh, no. Um, um, but 
it's just a very there's there seems to be a sort of there's a magic number in the indie world and in that in-between world because this is not it, it's not a, a big I wouldn't say it was commercial in this in a Robocop sense you know it's not and then there's that magic number that is that is this, the indie world is about four and the other and, the, and that other number is about 20 mm. and I can't do it for I can't make it for 20 I need more than that and r- getting above there is um, yeah it's that weird nether world isn't it that it's that that's it, everyone's it's saying it's harder to get films made at that yeah. level and everybody wants to do it they do it they're, they're shooting it you know in these places where they get sort of obviously tax rebates and and you know so they they kind of want to really they want to go into profit before the film is made mm. they want to sell it and 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 do it um but i hope it's you know um, i'd love to do it this year at some point but it just uh it's tough yeah, yeah. that's a downbeat note to end on but thank you very much yeah what a what a, what a yes <laughs> yeah i hope so but thanks yeah that was oh, fun I, yeah thanks thank carrie you. And that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll be joined by Cuban Fury star Nick Frost and the wonderful double bill of Monuments Men stars Bob Balaban. Bob Balaban. And Bill freaking Murray. Bill freaking Murray might be on the podcast. (laughs) Depends if we can get through that 0800 number that he has and persuade him to turn up. Uh, Until then, it is goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. Goodbye from Nick. Bye-bye. Goodbye from Ali. Goodbye. (laughs) And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to play acoustic guitar with Robo Hands. See you next week. Bye.